Let's go together into the Word of God tonight, the book of Hebrews, chapter number 12. Hebrews, chapter number 12. I'm going to be continuing a message that I began last Sunday, dealing with uh, the topic of parenting. And for those of you who were not here last week, I would encourage you, if you have an opportunity, to go online and... uh, listen to that sermon, because I'm not going to have time to repeat uh, certainly all of that tonight, Um, but uh, if you, as we go through this tonight, are wanting some more background and context, then I would encourage you to do that. But we are considering a particular trend in parenting that, uh, um, at least in its current form, uh, began to be popularized about maybe 20 years ago or so. Um, It's not a new error, but it is kind of a new twist on an old error. Uh, It's a style of parenting that's uh, popular in online and social media and different things like that. A lot of influencers uh, are are promoting it. Um, And in this style of parenting, um, you aren't allowed or not uh, supposed to um, insist on obedience from your children, but rather... The premise is that if you will treat your children uh, with respect, as they define it, that your children will intrinsically choose to respect you. And it's on that basis of mutual respect uh, that you parent the child. And, and, and just so you know, we're not talking about 5, 10, 15-year-olds. We're talking about 1, 2, 3-year-olds and, uh, and even, even younger than that. And so you don't, you don't give commands. Uh, you give suggestions, you ask leading questions, uh, you do not um, reprimand them or scold them or really correct them in any way. They're very clear in that teaching, you should not tell a child that uh, what they did was wrong. Uh, you should uh, uh, gently guide them into making a better choice. And so there is no punishment, consequently. Uh, there should be no negative consequences for Poor behavior, we can't say wrong behavior because that's, that's a little bit too dogmatic, but, you know, less than ideal behavior. Uh, there's no, uh, no punishment for that. But also, curiously enough, there's no reward for ideal behavior either. It's, uh, it's just uh, there's no punishment or reward system involved here. You should just, just guide them so that, again, they use this expression, they intrinsically choose to do what they're supposed to do. and It's a very emotional system. It all centers around affirming the emotions of the child as valid. Whatever those emotions are, uh, you as the parent are to uh, identify and empathize with those, uh, those emotions. And uh, you're supposed to let the child know that those emotions are good, nothing wrong with that. Uh, and it's just a matter of uh, you know, learning how to, how to process those, those emotions. And so it's very emotionally centered. And it ends up being the, that the... Uh, the, the, the emotions of the child in practice really do drive this parenting style and that the parent is constantly responding to the emotions that the child is presenting at any given moment. And uh, so you're not allowed to tell a child that, that they've done something wrong. You're not allowed to punish them for it. You're not allowed to reward them if they do good. Uh, you're not allowed to tell them that how they're acting out, be it throwing a temper tantrum or, or whining or complaining or anything like that. You're not allowed to tell them that's wrong behavior. You can't do that. Um, and, uh, and, and from a spiritual point of view, as we discussed last week, this is a very dangerous parenting philosophy uh, because it teaches the child that they are essentially good, that they are not sinners in need of a Savior, but they're essentially good and they just need to learn how to, how to manifest that goodness properly. Well, that is completely the opposite of the gospel. The gospel, as we're going to see tonight, is that, that we're all sinners and we need a Savior. And yes, that sin begins to manifest itself at the earliest of ages through the lusts of the flesh that even an infant and a toddler do have, and they exhibit sinful characteristics when they're being controlled by their feelings and their emotions and different things like that. But see, this this parenting system says, no, that's not true. They're good. You just need to learn to, um, to model good behavior for them, and then they will choose to do what is right. And the end result is that children who are not taught the gospel will not learn 
to accept Christ as their Savior. One of the jobs that God has given to parents, to Christian parents, is to pass on the truth of the gospel to their children, to be evangelizing in the home. And so I say of this system, it is a very harsh system because it leads children astray. I think it's a very cruel system because rather than giving children clear direction, you are supposed to use psychological manipulation and leading questions that they don't know the answers to to try and somehow redirect their behavior, to use misdirection instead of correction in order to uh, get them on the right track. I say that's cruel. I say that's harsh. But see, many people are buying into it because they have stuck a name on it that sounds good. They call it gentle parenting. I say there's nothing gentle about it. They may emphasize the fact that you don't raise your voice. They may uh, rightly so tell parents that you, don't, you, you need to be, model what you are teaching your children. You don't need to be a hypocrite. That's right. They, they may teach that you should respect the child and their personhood. Be, and that is true because every one of us is created in the image of God and we have intrinsic worth. But to call it gentle parenting when it's really just an old error of telling people that I'm okay, you're okay... We're all essentially good. We all have that divine spark, and that leads them astray from the Savior. There's nothing gentle about that. And so I won't rehash all of last week's message, but again, I encourage you to go listen to that online if if you didn't get an opportunity uh, to hear it. And tonight we're going to pick up where we left left off in in our study of this. And uh, it was the, the last point I was going to give, and it'll be the title of the message tonight. And we're simply going to look at gentle parenting debunked. That is proven wrong from Scripture. And Hebrews chapter 12 is where we're going to begin in the Word of God tonight. And by the way, uh, we're going to do a lot more in in diving into Scripture this this evening um, than we did even last week. Last week I was sharing a lot of what they said about um, what they believed. And tonight I I want you to hear directly from God what He says because that's what's important. But Hebrews chapter 12, look at verses 6 and 7. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Heavenly Father, as we look into your word tonight, We desperately need clarity on some very important issues about how to properly rear children and to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There's so many competing voices out there vying for our attention and introducing a whole host of ideas that are not biblical. We need discretion. We need wisdom from you to be able to see through all of the lies and the error and the deceit and to discern what truly is the pattern of Scripture as it relates to parenting. Lord, I pray for everyone here tonight, whether they have children in the home, whether they have grandchildren, whether they have no children of their own, but simply no children. uh, Lord, that you would help us all to have a biblical philosophy of child rearing. And that as a church body, we would encourage godly, gospel-centered parenting. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to break down the errors of gentle parenting as a movement by giving you several views that they have that are absolutely wrong. Now, I will say this, that because gentle parenting is not a defined movement with one spokesperson telling everybody this is what it is, you will find variations on the theme. And uh, so some of the things I will say tonight, there may be some people in the gentle parenting world that might not say it that way. Uh, But to the best of my ability, I'm going to present to you what I've learned through my research as is uh, what is the gentle parenting take and show you why that's not correct from Scripture. So number one, gentle parenting has a wrong view of God. 
It has a wrong view of God. And this is the biggest problem. Now, as we go through each of these wrong views, we're going to break it down into two categories as we deal with the people who promote this. I'm going to talk about the secularists, that is people who do not identify as Christian or Bible believers or religious in any way, and how they have this view. But then I'm also going to spend a lot of time focusing on how Christians who are promoting this are wrong in these areas. Because I think that's what's most dangerous for churches like ours and people like you and I um, fellowship with on a regular basis is it's the Christians who are adopting this worldly philosophy and maybe rinsing it off a little bit and then, you know, passing it on to someone else. But it's essentially coming from the same secularist source and it's got the same problems. So we're going to look at both of these tonight. Um, You're in Hebrews. um, Turn over to chapter 13. And here's a verse of Scripture as we talk about the view of God that's predominant amongst the gentle parenting promoters. Hebrews 13 and verse number 8 says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Malachi 3, 6, the Lord says, I am the Lord. I change not. You know, as you read through the Bible and you read about God in the book of Genesis, it is the same God and the same attributes of God that you read about in the book of Joshua, later in the book of Psalms, later in Isaiah and the major prophets, and then in the minor prophets. He's the same God that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same God that you read about in the epistles, the same God that you read about in the book of Revelation. God does not change. God is who He is. He has always been that way, and He always will be that way. His attributes are what we call immutable. They cannot change. God is the same. And amongst those who promote gentle parenting, in the secularist world, their basic view is there is no God. Now, Some of them may be professors of religion of some sort. They may say they believe in a God or a higher power. But when it comes to the actual, what they teach in gentle parenting, in the secular world, you're not going to find any instruction in there whatsoever that centers on a real God who exists as He has revealed Himself in Scripture. They're just not going to do it. Because they are secular humanists. Man is the measure of all things. If we believe in God, then we must believe in a higher power, a.k.a. an authority. Someone who gets to say, do this and don't do that. And so the secularists, they just disregard God altogether. Now they will concede that you can teach your children to believe in God, that's fine, but certainly don't teach an authoritarian view that requires obedience or a God who requires submission to His will. That does not fit with the gentle parenting model. But what about the Christians? I, uh, I found a book as I was um, doing research on this, um, and it seemed like it would be a good one to give me an idea of what the Christian world who is promoting gentle parenting might think. Um, it's a book that was very popular on Amazon. Uh, the author of it seemed to be uh, one that was pretty familiar in most, uh, most cases. And the title of it was called Jesus the Gentle Parent, A Christian's Guide to Gentle Parenting. And I thought, well, this is probably going to be pretty good to give me an idea of where they're coming from here. And so uh, I did the dirty work for you, and I read the book, and uh, I will just say I was not impressed in the least. Because as I read through this book, I saw the same old error that I have seen over and over again amongst people who are not true Bible believers. And when I say what I mean that is that they, they don't take the Bible as it is. They pick and choose. They change definitions. They make it fit their worldview. They don't allow the Bible to determine their worldview. And one of the most common errors we see is in, in our modern day is that people who are not true Bible believers, they say they believe in God, but the God they talk about is a God that was all love and no judgment. Some years ago, there was a guy by the name of Rob Bell. Some of you may know that name, but he wrote a book entitled Love Wins. And in this book, it was basically a thesis how that on all the attributes of God, there's only one attribute that came out on top, and that was the love of God. And so God's wrath, God's mercy, God's judgment, God's grace, God's holiness, all these other attributes, they really don't matter. All that matters is 
God's love. And his conclusion was, based on his, his take on it, that because God is love, pretty much everybody's saved. Pretty much everybody's going to be saved because God just loves everyone so much, He's going to save them regardless. And so as I read through this book, I said, I, I saw the same, same emphasis over and over again. God is love, no judgment, a very one-sided view. And there was a particular passage, and I'm going to share many quotes with you tonight from this book. Here's one particular passage that highlighted the, the, uh, the wrong perspective of God. She said, let's take a quick look at the God of the Old Testament, that seemingly distant, unreachable, merciless, commanding, harshly punishing image being touted as the parenting model we must follow. Now, I have several problems with that, that snippet there. First of all, uh, the false dichotomy. And that, it, uh, that means that she's drawing a, 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 an untrue distinction between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. It's the same God. All of the attributes you see in the Old Testament are the same attributes that God has in the New Testament and vice versa. That's the first thing. Second of all, how she describes the God of the Old Testament is completely off base. Distant, unreachable, merciless, commanding, harshly punishing. What about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leadeth me beside the still waters, and so on and so forth. But what about all of the stories in the Old Testament, how God met His people where they were and pled with them and begged with them to repent of their sins and promised them that if they would do right, He would bless them again. But that's not the picture that she paints of the God of the Old Testament. It's because her view of God is completely wrong. She went on to say in, in, in this particular passage, this was her summary of the Old Testament. Her summary of the Old Testament was that God gave a bunch of laws and man rebelled against those laws, and so God gave more laws. Well, that's just completely false. That's biblically false. God did not stack rule upon rule after He gave the law in the Old Testament. He gave the law, and then the rest of it is how God's people rebelled against the law, and God dealt with them to try to bring them to repentance. And she ended up with, by saying, after God added more and more rules, she said, the result, more rebellion. And it's the age-old, the tired argument that rules lead to rebellion. If so, then God is the one who caused man's sin. You can't come to any other conclusion. Because in the garden, God gave man a rule. Just one rule. But He gave a man a rule. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He also warned him of the consequences. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. If rules cause rebellion, then God, who gave the rule is guilty of causing the rebellion. That is not a scriptural view of God. And so gentle parenting, and I could say much more on each of these points. I'm not for, for your sake tonight. I don't see any lunch boxes. I don't think you have a sandwich with you, so we're going to move through this really quickly. But it, it starts with a whole wrong view of God. But then number two, it moves to a wrong view of God's Word. For this, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. By the way, I have a stack of stuff here. If anybody's wanting to see some of the things that I, I have uh, compiled, you're, you're welcome to, to look at this sometime. As we're looking at a wrong view of God's Word... There was a quote that uh, described biblical parenting, not in a positive way. I can't find it off the top of my head, but let me give you the summary of it. Basically, they said that it is uh, a, scien a scientific-based parenting model and that it replaces the old, outmoded, outdated parenting models handed down to us, in this particular article it said from the Victorian era. Basically saying, and, and they, they, they make this claim as well, that the way that our parents did it, the way that our grandparents did it, it was all wrong. We're the first generation to have this much knowledge to figure out how to do it right. Lucky us. It's amazing the world survived until these millennials came along writing books. Amen? You know? 
I say that the root of that thinking goes back to a disregard of the Word of God. Because the, di- because the Word of God is timeless. Notice 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. How is a child going to gain the wisdom to receive Christ as their Savior? Is it by affirming that their emotions are all valid? Is it by using misdirection instead of correction? No, it is through the Scriptures. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Now, what do the Scriptures do? Look at this passage. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. For what? For doctrine, for reproof, for... Oh, there's that awful word. Correction. For instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. And so God has given us His Word to tell us what is right and what is true so that we can correct what is wrong, we can make it right, and we can keep it right. That's why God has given us His Word, to change our thinking so that we would be saved and so that we would live out Christ-like character in our lives. Now, what is the secularist view of the Word of God. Well, they say it's an ancient book that might have some good tips, but really it's outdated and you, you don't even need to worry about that. Don't even, don't even mess with that anymore. There are unscientific methods in there, you know. Uh, they, they couldn't do EEGs back when the Bible was written, so they weren't able to do brain scans of children to measure how they responded in different stressful circumstances. And so that's how we know that gentle parenting is the best model today. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. What is the Christian's view on the Word of God? Now, I'm not going to speak for every Christian who calls themselves a gentle parent or a gentle parenting promoter, but I will give you what I found in the book that I read by a popular gentle parenting promoter who calls herself a Christian. And what I found as I began to read this book, because I honestly had the question, how can a Christian promote this stuff? And I did not have to get into the second paragraph of the book. And I realized, oh, that's how she's going to do it. She does it by redefining everything. At least everything significant and everything important. Literally. In fact, I got kind of annoyed, to be honest with you, because when I got to the very end of the book, she had included a section of definitions. And when I went through it, I was like, well, those are all the bad definitions I'd highlighted earlier in the book. She did all my work for me, you know. But let me give you just some of the redefinitions that she gives to justify her gentle parenting promotion. In the second paragraph of the book, she mentioned God giving ten commandments. Now, you hear commandment, what do you think? You probably think like me, thou shalt and thou shalt not, right? Okay, and that implies obedience, compliance, do this, don't do that. So a commandment, I thought everybody understood what a commandment was. Thankfully, I was enlightened. And I learned that a commandment is not a commandment. It is a direction or a guide. A direction or a guide. Now, do commandments direct us and guide us? Yes. But what is removed from that definition? Compliance. The expectation of compliance. She redefines commandments. Redefining another word, obey. She made this assertion in the book and I was just floored. She made the assertion that the word obey is not in any of the original text. The English, the, 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 the word obey is not in there. That's a word that was put in there by the translators and it shouldn't be there. She said that obey means to hear from above, to listen for, to internalize, to reflect upon. But notice again, no compliance required. So what is disobey then? Well, it means to close one's ears to something or to ignore it. No mention of whether or not someone's complying. I give you many more. Let me give you just a couple more though. What about sin? What is sin then? Because I'm just, I'm just a simple guy. So when I read 1 John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law, I think sin is the transgression of the law. No, I found out that sin simply means acting outside of God's nature. 
Okay, well, yeah, that, that is what sin is, but with such a vague and nebulous definition, it's, it's like, what is that? What, what do you mean by that? No, sin literally means you transgressed, you disobeyed the law. That's sin, but not, 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 to, not to her. What about the word punish? I mean, if your whole system is you can't punish children, you've got to redefine punish because of many instructions in Scripture. And so here is the redefinition. Punish doesn't mean, you know, to inflict negative consequences. No, 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 no. It means simply to carry guilt or to bear one's own iniquity. That's all it means. Then I can give you a host of other words, but in every case, it's almost invariably, I had a thought in my mind, well, what about this? At some point, I would come across, oh, here's the new definition. We just explain it away. We redefine it. I was very curious, you know, where is she getting these definitions from? She used one Greek lexicon and one modern Hebrew dictionary. That was it. And uh, very weak to say the least. But let me say this, and I, I have this struggle sometimes with, with people that I love and I respect, and we may maybe uh, sometimes have differences of opinion on biblical things, Sometimes they go back to the lexicon, the dictionary, and say, well, this word is defined here this way, so that's what this scripture might mean. Let me say this. Even if all of the man-made lexicons and dictionaries in all the world were stacked against the Bible, it wouldn't make a bit of difference because God gets to define His own terms. So when God uses a word... We can look in Scripture and we can see, how does God use this word? We can compare Scripture with Scripture. And we can come to an understanding, what does this word actually mean? And so people have compiled things like dictionaries and lexicons to help us begin that. But at the end of the day, the dictionary does not determine our doctrine. The Bible does. And so when we read in Scripture about obedience, and it is clearly understood, that means compliance. We don't get to erase that simply because we found Mr. Egghead at this university who defined it a different way. When we read that sin is the transgression of the law, we don't get to water that down and sugarcoat that because we found another definition that sounds better to us. God gets to define His own terms. 2 Peter 1 and verse 20, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of private interpretation. You don't get to do that. I don't get to do that. I don't get to come to the Bible. And this is a dangerous question. Listen to me. I don't get to ask, what does this mean to me? That's a dangerous question, and here's why. Because it can lead people to think that they get to choose for themselves what does the Bible mean. Now, if what you mean is, how can I apply this to my life today, that's fine. I, I understand that. But that's not what people often mean when they say, what does the Bible mean to me? I've had those conversations with people. I've, had, I've, I've stood to them, and I've, I've read them a verse of Scripture. And they say, well, let me tell you what that means to me. And they say something completely different than what the Bible actually says. We don't get to do that. God's Word is holy. God's Word is perfect. God's Word is preserved. And it is the standard that we are to live our lives by. Number three, they have a wrong view of God, they have a wrong view of God's Word, and very dangerously, they have a wrong view of the Gospel. Now, the secularist should be pretty obvious. They don't believe that man needs redemption. Sin's not a problem. We don't need redemption. We're fine how we are. We just, we just need to learn to be our best selves. That's a secular humanist point of view. And unfortunately, the Christians, some of them have adopted that secular point of view. And to them, the gospel is simply about reconnection, not redemption. Listen to this statement. God set out to reconnect with His children. And how did He do it? Gentle parenting. Reconnect with His children. Well, what about redemption? What about repentance? What about sanctification? What about justification? What about, what about dealing with the sin problem? 
But see, this is as you get deeper into this, you find that there is there's a very, very crucial error that they make. And I'm going to read some lengthy passages here because you may think I'm making it up. And I want you to I want you to hear this. Their own words. They literally teach that children are not sinners. In fact, there's um there's one whole world out there. Um, I forget the, the, the lady's name, um, but the, 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 the name of her book series and her blog and everything is called uh, Parenting Good or Good Parenting or something like that. And it's not about um, being a good parent. It's you are good and your children are good and you need to learn how to parent in that paradigm. The lady that I was reading in this book, uh, Jesus, the gentle parent, made the, the very clear statements. She did not believe children are born sinners. Listen to these statements. Quote, but here's the thing. Babies aren't born with an inbuilt flaw. They are born perfect. God handcrafts every human. He said so himself. His work is perfect. He said so himself. Little humans are made in God's image, formed by the very hands that created the universe, and spoken into life by the very voice that he that called everything he created good. Jesus himself is not only fully God, he was also fully human, formed in the womb, known by his Father before his birth, and filled with life by the breath of God. Jesus, fully human, fully perfect. No inbuilt flaw from the hands of God. Believing that babies are formed by God in the womb with a fatal flaw and are therefore born as sinners, liars, and manipulators simply doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up in light of God's perfection, His love, His wisdom. In another section, she said, In the positive parenting approach, children are born perfect and need only to be guided through the normal stages and behaviors of childhood. In the punitive parenting approach, children are born sinful and must be forced to submit to superior authority. By the way, I highlighted that and I said, that's a pretty good summary. Quote, we are, every one of us, inclined toward the full range of human behaviors and emotions, both positive and negative. We were created that way, and everything God creates is good. Yes, you read that right. We are good. But we can do bad. That's human nature. That is free will. And that is beautiful, messy, wonder-filled, chaotic, lovely, noisy, joyful, heartbreaking life here on earth. Children are not born sinners. They're born good. Morally good. They get the gospel wrong because we're not sinners. There's no penalty for sin. The only penalty for sin, according to this teaching, is not being as close to God as you could be. That's the only repercussion for sin. Quote, sin is a moot point in light of the grace we've been given. Grace is the point, the whole point. Everything leading up to the cross pointed to the cross. Everything was settled on the cross and on the cross. In the outstretched arms of Jesus, grace was born. Sin only matters in the sense that when we voluntarily choose to stay within the boundaries God has given us, we are closer to Him, more in tune with Him, and more aligned with His will. That's the, that's, first of all, she defines sin as voluntarily choosing to go outside of the boundaries God has given. But then she also clearly indicates that the only repercussion for that is we're not as close to God as we could be. What about the penalty of sin is death? The gospel, they get the gospel wrong because they say we're not sinners. There's no penalty for sin. They say that Jesus' death on the cross was to free us from the consequences of our mistakes regardless of our repentance. Because of what Jesus did, there are no more consequences. Listen to this. Aren't we emptying the cross of its power and its message when we insist that our children must bear the consequences of their mistakes? We've been freed from the consequences of our mistakes. Don't we want our children to have the same experience, the same freely offered gift? Freed from the consequences of our mistakes? That only counts when we, place, when we repent and we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we are freed from the penalty of sin. But if after that we sin, we still have to bear the consequences. They get the gospel wrong. They get the gospel wrong because they teach we're not obligated to share the gospel. 
quote, Instead of proselytizing, evangelizing, and sermonizing for my king, I let his love permeate all I do like the subtle fragrance of rain as it washes clean the earth. I don't sermonize. I don't evangelize. I don't proselytize. I just be a fluffy cloud. It's honestly hard for me to read some of this language. We're not obligated to share the gospel. There's no rebuke for sin. There's no repentance for sin because we're all born good. And if there's no repentance, there's no redemption. Jesus said, Nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. They say that's cruel to tell people they need to repent. Turn to Romans chapter 2. Is preaching repentance harsh and cruel? Only to a very, very distorted and warped warped mind because it's the opportunity to receive the grace of God. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and longsuffering? That's speaking of God's interactions with us. Do we despise His goodness, His forbearance, His long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to what? Repentance. Repentance. They have a wrong view of the gospel. Number four. I have a goal to get you out a minute sooner than last week, so. They have a wrong view of gender roles have a wrong view of gender roles. You know, in Scripture, there's very clear, very clear pattern that God has, has set forth about the roles of men and women. First of all, the fact that there are two genders, male, female. Second of all, that each has been given different responsibilities. And we know that that is being thrown out the window today in our modern society. And what was enlightening to me, and I don't mean that sarcastically, I mean that sincerely, what was enlightening to me in this study is that the promoters of gentle parenting, by and large, identify as feminists. Feminists. So for the secularists, they're they're all-out feminists who reject God's divine order. In fact, Sarah Ockwell Smith, the secular writer who has made pop- popular the gentle parenting, uh, 14, 15 books that she's written over the last 20 years about it, uh, she has, in one of her blog posts I read, um, talked about how that the problems we have in our society are because of the patriarchy. And we need to replace the patriarchy with the matriarchy. And that will solve our problems. I have, I have a printout here of one of her blog posts, 10 Ways to be LGBTQ plus supportive when raising children. So if you want to know what the secularist thinks about gender roles, you can read that. But what about the Christians? Surely they would not adopt that extreme of view, would they? Well, the book that I've been quoting from tonight, Jesus the Gentle Parent, was written by a a lady by the name of L.R. Nost, or Nost, I'm not sure. It's K-N-O-S-T. And here is the description from her website, the About the Author page. L.R. Nost, award-winning author, feminist, and social justice activist. L.R. Nost is the founder and director of the Children's Rights Advocacy and Family Consulting Group, Little Hearts slash Gentle Parenting Resources, and editor-in-chief of Holistic Parenting Magazine. The second description was feminist. And so, curiously, as I read through her book, there was absolutely nothing about God's divine order of a th- and for the home, about the husband being the head of the wife and then the mother and father together raising the children. There was no language whatsoever at all, no discussion. Now, I can't say exactly what she believes, but if she identifies herself as a feminist, then she's identifying with a group of people who do not believe in God's divine order. Because in Genesis 3, or Genesis, 
actually 1, 2, and 3, we see the whole pattern there. God created man, then He created woman. Man was the leader, woman was the helper. Sin came, and that relationship where once was harmonious now became contentious. Genesis 3.16, And to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception, and sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. The punishment was not that the husband was in charge. The punishment was now it was going to be hard for her to submit to that. And it was going to be hard for the husband to lead in a godly way. And so, as I have done research... I noticed along the way, I'm sure there are men out there promoting this, but I didn't find any. Exclusively, the books that I saw, the articles I read, the YouTube videos that I watched were women. I don't say that to disparage women at all. But I say that to point out that there is a severe lack of fatherly influence in this program, in this system, in this scheme. It makes sense. It's emotionally centered. Men, by and large, are not as emotional as women. And many fathers would have a very hard time following a system like this consistently simply because it is outside our frame of reference. But they get... A wrong view of gender. And then number five, and so it boils down to a wrong view of godly parenting. They get God wrong, they get His Word wrong, they get the gospel wrong, they get gender roles wrong. So it makes no sense when it comes to parenting children, they get it wrong too. How do they get it wrong? Let me give you some key errors. First of all, it teaches children to be self-centered. It teaches children to be self-centered. They're supposed to learn to intrinsically self-regulate their emotions. What about teaching children the need of a Savior and then teaching them how to submit to the Holy Spirit in their life? That's not in there. Self-control that the Bible teaches about, that temperance that is a fruit of the Spirit, it's not the product of our own efforts. We need the Holy Spirit's control in our life, not self-empowered, self-righteous self-control. Children don't need to be taught to self-regulate. They need to be taught to submit to God. It's very The whole system teaches children to be self-centered. Gentle parents are supposed to let the child know that everything revolves around them. That is the child. Quote, Parenthood is very simply a beautiful sacrifice that mothers and fathers willingly and lovingly live for their children day after day, night after night, as a reflection of the sacrifice Jesus made for His children on the cross. Does that send up any red flags to you? It did to me. The point of being a Christian parent is not to tell your child that you live for them. The point of being a Christian parent is to tell your child, we live for God. We do not teach our children that everything revolves around them. We teach our children that everything revolves around God. For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things. Second error that I, th I see as a huge problem, it teaches children that all emotions are okay. That's a lie. I don't know a nicer way to say it. Not every emotion that I feel is good and right. Here's some quotes that they give. Small people have big emotions and need help processing them. Their cries as babies and shrieks and tantrums as toddlers and meltdowns as preschoolers are literally cries for help. There was a whole chapter in this book and, um, in which she made the assertion that there's nothing wrong with a child throwing a temper tantrum and she used the example of Jesus overthrowing the tables in the temple. She said, see, Jesus had a temper tantrum. Curious that she didn't use that as an example of forceful words and actions to bring about compliance. Because that's what Jesus actually did. She said this, quote, anger is a safety valve, a catharsis of emotion. Not all anger is good anger. You understand that. She gives a quote from Dr. James Dobson. You know him. 
from a book he entitled The New Strong-Willed Child. He said, children are naturally inclined toward rebellion, selfishness, dishonesty, aggression, exploitation, and greed. Listen to that list again. This is from Dr. Dobson. Rebellion, selfishness, dishonesty, aggression, exploitation, and greed. She goes on to say, Dobson is right. He is also incredibly wrong. Yes, children are naturally inclined toward all those things and more. And so are we, the parents. But listen, listen to this. The flip side of that coin, though, is that we all, parents and children and every other human, are also naturally inclined toward cooperation, sacrifice, honesty, peace, honor, and generosity. We are, every one of us, inclined toward the full range of human behaviors and emotions, both positive and negative. We were created that way, and everything God creates is good. She literally just said, rebellion, selfishness, dishonesty, aggression, exploitation, and greed are how God made us, and that's good. It teaches children that all emotions are okay. That's a huge error. It teaches children that requiring compliance is wrong, only inviting cooperation is okay. She gives an example. Instead of, no, you can't have ice cream until after dinner, try, I know you love ice cream, I do too. We're getting ready to eat right now, but what flavor would you like after dinner? This invites cooperation instead of triggering opposition. Another hallmark of gentle parenting. In other words, parent, it's your fault if your child rebels because you, ha you shouldn't have given them a rule. It teaches children, next error, that there's no punishment for sin. Quote, our children need us to parent them, not punish them. That summarizes their point of view. But what did we read at the beginning here? Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now as I close, I just want to ask two questions. Number one, does this work in the real world? I just want to be pragmatic for a minute. If I play this whole scheme out, how does that work? If I apply gentle parenting to my life today, is it going to work? If I'm driving down the road and I see a speed limit sign, and I say, oh, that's just an invitation to cooperation. You know, I feel like going 50 in a 35. You know, if I do that, and a police officer catches me, he's likely to turn on those blue lights and start following me. Suppose I said, oh, there's another invitation to cooperation. You know, I appreciate that and I respect him for it, but I, I don't feel like doing that today. How's that going to go for me? No, because that speed limit sign is a command. Here's the law. If you break the law, there's consequences. Those blue lights on the police car that's tailing me is a command. Pull over or there are going to be consequences. Let's use another example. If I fill out my taxes incorrectly, knowingly or unknowingly, and I fail to pay the IRS what I owe, how are they going to respond? Isn't it funny how you make a mistake and they're on you in like a week, but it takes you 13 weeks to get your refund? I don't understand how that works. How are they going to respond? Are they going to send me a letter with a leading question? Are they going to write me a letter and say, Mr. Chambers... Wouldn't it have been a better idea for you to have paid your full taxes? Is that how they're going to respond? No. They're going to say, you didn't pay us what you owe us. Pay it. And here's the fee, the penalty, the punishment. That doesn't sound very gentle to me. If I fail to do that, they're going to get even nastier about it. And they're going to send me more letters, even threaten to take my bank account, my house, my cars. My children, my dog, well, they can have the dog. I don't care about that. But What about another real-world situation? What if I consistently fail to show up on, to work on time and to do my job? Is my only consequence of that going to be that I'm not as close to my boss as I could be? No. There's going to be consequences. It is not based in reality. It fails the test of life. But what's more important is it fails the test of Scripture. Just because it's called gentle doesn't mean that it's actually gentle or good. Because there's nothing gentle about leading children astray. 
There's nothing gentle about telling them they're born perfect when they're sinners in need of a Savior. There's nothing gentle about not teaching them that there are consequences for your actions. There's nothing gentle about neglecting to teach the importance of repentance and faith for salvation. No, it's cruel, it's harsh, and it's godless. Jesus warned in Luke 17, It is impossible but that offenses will come. But woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he cast into the sea than that he should offend, that is to make fall, one of these little ones. Lord willing, next week we're going to finish this study by looking at godly, gospel-centered parenting. But I want to encourage you tonight as we close. Love your children. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teach them right from wrong. Lovingly correct them. Love them enough to tell them they're sinners and they need a Savior. Love them enough to share Jesus with them. And replace this gentle parenting scheme with godly, gospel-centered parenting. Heavenly Father, I'm so glad that I can call you my Heavenly Father. You've given us the spirit of adoption where we can cry, Abba, Father, the same word that Jesus used in His prayer in the garden, Abba, Father. And Lord, as Christian parents, it should be our goal to parent our children the way that You've instructed to point them to a Savior that they might repent and receive Christ, be saved. Please, Lord, give us discernment. Give us a selfless, sacrificial love for our dear children. Forgive us, Lord, for the many times that we have fallen short of the standard that you have laid out for us. Forgive us for the times that we were harsh and unkind and hypocritical. Forgive us, Lord, when we lost our tempers and did not model Christ-like love and servant leadership. Lord, help us to do better that we might glorify you more. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.